Once again, it is my distinct pleasure and honor to reconnect with author Mark Cushman, who is a very, very busy and gifted writer uh, with whom I've had the pleasure twice now of of talking about a series of books that he has written called These Are the Voyages, which take us painstakingly through the Star Trek series, the original series, episode by episode, and helping us understand not only how each of those episodes came into being, the uh, monumental work that was done both on camera and behind the scenes uh, to bring each of those uh, episodes to life, but also the overarching story of this phenomenally popular program, which uh, in its day was embraced by all kinds of people in the public, but by no means understood by some of the uh, leading figures of television who did not understand what they had and, in a sense, went out of their way to bring about its premature close. But, of course, uh, the public's love of this program is ultimately what won out, and Star Trek is still very much with us all of these years later. Mark Cushman's expertise in the world of television and writing uh, goes beyond Star Trek, um, he has written a number of, of scripts for different films as well as uh, feature films like In the Eyes of the Killer and uh, Desperately Seeking Paul McCartney. He co-authored a book about another important groundbreaking series, I Spy. And again, the uh, most recent book, the third book of These Are the Voyages, is published by Jacobs Brown Press. And Mark Cushman, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Hi, Greg. Great to be here. So glad to have you here. Uh, most people who follow Star Trek uh, are pretty much unanimous in, in believing that the quality of the program went into rather serious decline as we got into the third season. And we'll kind of talk about some of the reasons behind that. But be that as it may, I remember at the end of our last conversation, you making the point that uh, that decline actually, in a sense, enhanced the story for you, and that in some respects, this book that talks about the third season is your favorite of the three. Tell us a little more about why, in a sense, what's in a lot of ways kind of a sad, frustrating story of the third season is also a very compelling story for you as a storyteller. Well, you know, as a writer, we love conflict. We love conflict in what we write, not in our lives. So we want it to be in other people's lives. And any story, you have to have a lot of conflict, and they sure had it during that third season. They had it during the entire run of Star Trek, going all the way back to the pilot, uh, trying to, to invent everything they were doing, do a series uh, that was unlike anything that had been done before. The closest you came to was Lost in Space, which kicked off one year before Star Trek. But really, Star Trek beat Lost in Space in filming its pilot. Its first pilot was filmed before Lost in Space filmed their pilot, so it just took a year longer to get it on the air. Uh, with the second pilot they had to make, uh, where no man has gone before. But uh, trying to live within the budget, trying to invent all the effects and the photographic effects and everything they were doing uh, was, was a challenge. Nobody thought Desilu could pull it off or Gene Roddenberry could pull it off. And by the time you got to the third year, each season the budget got cut uh, because it bankrupt Desilu, as you know, from book two, and a lot of people didn't realize that is uh, the board of directors told Lucille Ball, don't make this series, it'll ruin the studio, you'll lose the studio. And she stuck with Star Trek, and halfway through the second season, they had to sell the studio to Paramount. Paramount came in and said, we're not going to let this happen to us. You're going to make this show for less. And so everyone's getting raises, you have inflation, and at the same time, the per-episode budget has been dropped down. And the other thing that was going on, was that uh, Gene Roddenberry had been making enemies at NBC. Uh, the show was too um, topical. It was too controversial. It was even too sexy. I mean, those were, that was America's first look at the miniskirt. And you had Kirk making out with all kinds of women, green-skinned women, Klingon women. You know, it was just uh, too many stories that uh, ruffled the feathers of the peacock. And so by the time we got into the third year, NBC was... Uh, had their guns pointed at Star Trek. They had tried to cancel the show, and the fans uh, went into an uproar. So they put it back on, but they stuck it in the death slot, Friday nights at 10 p.m. So you have a terrible time slot, a terrible budget. Gene Roddenberry left the show in a huff with the fight with NBC. 
Fred Freiburgers comes in, and uh, he has no support, no money, and uh, he's told that the show's not going to be renewed no matter what the ratings are, that NBC's hidden away at 10 p.m. on Friday nights. They're going to let it play out, and it's going to be gone. So that's the, the, uh, the stage has been set, and you can imagine the drama in that type of a situation. Right, and you tell that, uh, that drama very, very well. Your, your book is packed with fascinating information, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to, to take it all apart. I, I want to actually take a moment, though, and talk about something which uh, is in the preface of the book. And you begin the preface of the first book on a very personal note as well, kind of talking about your very first encounter with this with this show, and when you lived in was it rural Oregon or something, and you know the your snowy TV with the rabbit ears. I mean, many times you could scarcely pull the program in, but uh, when you could watch this show, you f- you were falling in love with this show. Um, you tell a couple of other really uh, poignant and fun stories in the preface to this volume, uh, talking about you and your parents and Star Trek. Can you just say a word about that? Yeah. Well, you know, I'll just touch on that first part uh, for anyone who hasn't read the first book. I, I lived in a farm community up near Tillamook, Oregon, and lots of mountains around there. And we didn't get, on our farm, we didn't get NBC. We got CBS and ABC out of Portland. The NBC channel didn't come in except during the summer months uh, through a snowstorm, as you said. And uh, and so all the other kids were watching the show, and the teachers would say, okay, homework, and there'd be a groan. And they'd say, okay, we know it's, it's Thursday night, it's Star Trek night, no homework. And I thought, man, this is great. I don't know what Star Trek is, but I like it already. And, and they, the kids would tell me about it. And I, I noticed they were talking about the theme more than the story, and these were fourth graders. So uh, I was very curious to see this show, and uh, and finally started catching it in the middle of the uh, rerun season during the, that first year. Well, in third season, it goes to 10 p.m. Now, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I guess I was in the fifth grade, and back then, now fifth graders, I guess, stay up till 3 a.m., and gamble and smoke cigarettes and drink vodka but back then <laughs> it, it, it was a different story you know 10 o'clock you're in bed it's oh come on it's no school tomorrow it doesn't matter you're in bed at 10 o'clock and uh but it's also friday night football at high schools and i had three older sisters and so they were very much into the high school football game so the whole family would go out to support that so i was told well you can come along with us and you know you stay up later or you can stay home if you want and but you got to be in bed by 10 o'clock well, they didn't get home till about 10.30. So, of course, I would be watching Star Trek. And, and when I would hear the uh, station wagon pull into the driveway and the dog would start to bark, I would uh, turn off the TV and race back to my room and jump into bed and, and flip the light off, and there I go. I didn't find out later, uh, until later, my mother told me that uh, my dad would come in and go over and fill the, top, fill the top of the TV set, and they could feel it was still warm. And they all had a, a laugh at my expense. And I thought, you know... I try not to get angry about that, but it was like, I love that show, and you knew I was watching it. Why didn't you let me stay up and watch the last half hour? It was tough seeing half the story, and I didn't get to catch the rest of those stories until it went into syndication. But that, I think that helped make me turn into a writer because I would lie in bed and try to visualize how that episode ended. And then a year later in the reruns, I could find out how close I came. I was struck when you said something that implies, at least, that you and I think your friend Bob Olson, who who was watching the show also, uh, I mean, you weren't friends then. I don't think you knew each other then, but he had kind of a similar circumstance where he tried to figure out ways to rush home from the game and uh, whatever football game he was at to to watch that show as much as he could. It's very funny. We're the same age. We met after these books started coming out, and he wrote me a letter, and and, uh, he was in Los Angeles, so we met and talked. And it turned out he was very involved in the Save Star Trek campaign during that, uh, when the second season was canceled, and all the letters got them to pick it up for a third year. So I interviewed him, along with some other people who were out there actively writing letters and getting out and marching against the uh, the network and so forth, and found out that uh, same situation for him, and I'm sure it was the same situation for a lot of kids our age uh, at that time. And uh, so he went to the football games, and uh, and he would find an excuse. He, he could walk home, and it was maybe about a half mile to his house. 
And so he would uh, have an excuse why he had to go home, and uh, he would run all the way to try to get home in time to see Star Trek. And as you may recall, I don't, I don't know if you're probably not as old as us, but, but you'd get in there and you'd turn the TV set on. Back then, it took a while for that TV set to warm up. <laughs> I do remember that. So he'd, he'd turn that thing on and be sitting there, and the sound would come in first as the picture's slowly starting to open up from the middle. You get the little white dot, and it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and you finally pull in a picture. And so he would, he would try to get in there in time to catch the teaser and the, uh, the opening title sequence, and it was always a big panic for him to try to make it home in time for that. So I, I realized at that point, that's when I decided to do this uh, preface, is because I, I thought, you know what? If, if I found somebody else who was going through the same experience I was, there's probably thousands, maybe even a million people out there who went through the same thing we went through in trying to watch this show during that third year. <laughs> and, Just... and NBC did this on purpose. They, they, they were overwhelmed with all the letters that poured in and people marching against NBC and Burbank and against Rockefeller Plaza. And, and uh, radio stations uh, getting in on the act and getting people all riled up. And so for the third year, the idea was, well, let's put it somewhere where the fans are not going to be able to watch it. Let's alienate it from the fans. The teenagers are going to be out on dates. They're going to be out at football games, at proms. The young kids got to be in bed by 10. The, the older folk aren't going to want to watch it. They're going to be watching Judd for the Defense or the Friday night movie on CBS. And we'll just kill it and then we'll be able to take it off there, and there won't be a fuss. Well, there was a fuss. There still was a big, big uproar, and a lot of letters came in, but NBC was ready for it during the third year. Hmm. Unlike had, the first time around. That's right. Uh, they, they had uh, uh, letters that they were ready to send out. They hired extra people to man the phones, and, and uh, when all these letters came in, they sent out deceiving uh, letters to you saying that the show was going to come back. And what they did is they took it off the air after the first run season, and which was in April of uh, 69. They showed the last uh, episode of the third season. And they took it off the air for a few months, and then they stuck it in uh, for about 12 weeks of reruns at the very end of the summer after the schedule had been set for the next year. And so we're writing in our letters saying, please don't take our favorite show off the air. And they're sending us uh, a letter saying, don't worry, Star Trek's coming back. Well, yes, it is coming back in reruns for uh, for a few months, but they knew it was off the schedule. But they didn't want us to know that because they wanted us to stop writing the letters. Mm. And, of course, you remind us, it's so important to say this, especially for younger readers, that this is back uh, in a day where nothing like the Internet or email or Facebook or anything like that exists. So, in a sense, the dissemination of information and the exchange of opinion between strangers um, is, is, is all but impossible. And to whatever extent it does occur, it occurs over a much longer period of time. And so uh, f- for NBC then to uh, you make a couple of sort of funny curves in the road and sort of throw Star Trek fans off the scent, I mean, that might be all it would take to, to in a sense, send this down a, a very, very different path towards ultimate cancellation. Yeah, I mean, today that, you couldn't do that probably to the same extent. Not at all. Uh, we not only did not have the Internet, of course. I mean, that's only been around, it's hard to believe, 15 years now. Uh, what did we do before it? But, uh, but you know, you didn't have uh, magazines like uh, Entertainment Weekly, and you didn't have these uh, Access Hollywood TV shows, and you didn't have, people weren't tuned in to showbiz news like they are now. So you didn't know what was being canceled and what was being picked up and all that. And, and so word of mouth had to go from person to person. But, you know, it wasn't that difficult. And I'll tell you why. Because Star Trek was so popular. Even though there's been this myth that it was a failure on NBC, and my books have disproved this because I licensed the Nielsen reports for all three seasons for every episode. And you're seeing during that first year on Thursday nights, it was quite often winning its time slot. Uh, they moved it to Friday. It was still NBC's top-rated show out of all their Friday night shows. And when they moved it to 10 p.m., it quite often was still their top-rated show. It had, on average, about 20 million people tuning in every week. So a lot of people were watching this show, and especially people in my age group. I would go to school, and by the time the uh, third season was on the air, I was in, uh, I think, just starting junior high, seventh grade. And I didn't know anybody who wasn't watching this show. And there was one kid 
who didn't watch it. He said, oh, I think Star Trek's silly. And, of course, he was then treated like a leper <laughs> because everyone else, even the teachers, were watching this show. So we're looking around thinking, why is it being canceled? We don't know anyone who's not watching it. So there was communication between us, and somebody would come in and say, hey, it's been canceled, and suddenly we're all writing letters and, and so forth. And NBC couldn't figure out. They thought Gene Roddenberry was behind it all, and he was in ways because he was sending out uh, letters through his uh, mail order service letting us know who to write and things of that nature. But it really was. Uh, it had a large audience, and the audience communicated with each other. So we were organized in that regard. I mean, to a remarkable extent, given that time. And we should also re- remember that this was back in the day when writing to a network meant taking out your stationery and writing something or typing something and then putting it in an envelope, finding a stamp, finding the address. And, I mean, it was not nearly the same thing as Googling NBC and then clicking on this and find that link and and away you go. I mean, it uh, you really had to be committed to the idea of communicating something significant uh, right. to, a, to a network like NBC and, and for so many to be so deeply committed to doing that. It's, it's really incredible. You know, we were all very, very organized, and, and uh, it, it's, it's funny, even with all the communication we have now and all the, uh, the access to information that we have now with the Internet and so forth, people were much more aligned back then because there were less channels. I mean, you just look even at popular music, you know, on Top 40 Radio, you had everything from the Beatles to Frank Sinatra to Perry Como on the, ra- on the same station. So you were exposed to more things. It was more, you could have that uh, Monday morning uh, uh, conversation by the uh, water cooler at, at work. And if somebody said, hey, did you see the show last night? Chances are, uh, you know, one out of three people or half the people you're talking to had seen it. Try that today. You go now and say, hey, I saw this, this, uh, this show on HBO, and maybe one out of ten people say, yeah, I saw that too. So you don't have the, uh, the connection with people that you had back in the 60s where we all were a country watching the same things, experiencing the same things. So it was not that hard, really, to, to get organized. Uh, but it is interesting when, when I was writing these books and researching them and for you to be reading them, you can see how the, the, the seeds of this were planted and how it grew from person to person to person and, and went through the whole thing, and they're out there protesting. You see pictures of them marching on the network and uh, carrying their signs, uh, saying down with NBC and up with Mr. Spock and everything else. It was a very exciting uh, movement to be involved in. So I guess we were either protesting about Vietnam or we were protesting about Star Trek. Mm. We're speaking with Mark Cushman about his third volume in the series, These Are the Voyages. Volumes one and two, by the way, were given a Saturn Award from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Only the second time in the last 40 years that a book has been uh, given such an an, an award. I thought it was interesting that uh, at some point you imply that uh, even as a 13-year-old watching that third season, for as much as you loved Star Trek and was de- remained devoted to it, you could tell that some things were wrong. That is, yeah. that this was not quite the same show as it had once been. And, of course, any show in which its viewers are so devoted as were the viewers to Star Trek, the original series, are bound to 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 notice things that were different. For you, what were the things in this third season that started to bother you, even as a young 13-year-old? Well, you know, during the second season, uh, Gene Kuhn left the show. He was the producer. He, he came in and uh, took over for Gene Roddenberry, who moved up to executive producer at that point. And Gene Kuhn's background was mostly comedy. Uh, he had uh, developed the Munsters, and he had developed Mikkel's Navy, uh, and uh, and wrote a lot of uh, he wrote westerns and, and war shows as well, but uh, but he really had a great sense of humor, and so he found a way to create organic humor in Star Trek. He saw the potential of it with uh, William Shatner, who can be very funny, and uh, and with science fiction, you can do anything. So they were doing uh, some lighter episodes during the second year, like the Trouble with Tribbles and the Harry Mudd episodes, and Gene Roddenberry didn't care for this because at that time. You know, the other show was Lost in Space, which uh, was becoming like a uh, science fiction sitcom. And, uh, and My Favorite Martian as well. And so Roddenberry was very adamant that he wanted Star Trek to stay serious. 
and he wanted to make commentary on the uh, the political stories that were going on and the social stories and so forth. And and he didn't like seeing any kidding going on on the show. So he and Gene had a Gene Kuhn had a falling out, and uh, Gene left the series uh, towards the end of the second season. Gene Kuhn. Gene Kuhn. And when the third year came along and Roddenberry decided he wasn't going to line produce it because of the falling out he had with NBC, he brought in Fred Freiberger to do the show. Now, Fred, you know, Freddie, he had a sense of humor, too. Uh, some people think he didn't because the third series lacked humor. But, uh, but that was Gene Roddenberry's mandate to him. And Gene Roddenberry actually gave out the first 16 script assignments, which nobody knew about. I did my research, so you're finding that out in the book. And uh, and so he told Fred, no humor in this thing. Really try to reel that in. So that's the first thing we all noticed, is that the show was suddenly, uh, it was always a serious show, primarily. But suddenly the, the warmth between the characters seemed to be missing. And the other thing we noticed is that the pacing seemed slower more like next generation in that in that respect than what we think of as classic star trek where kirk's getting in fights and there's lots of action and, and running and so forth well what had happened also at that time which i found out doing the research for this is that was the year that the fcc the federal communications commission came forward and said we have to do something about violence on television there's too much of it and and keep in mind we had just come out of the uh, the 1950s and the 1960s with all the westerns and there was a, a report that was written at that time that estimated that on television, on American TV, we had killed the population of the world three times over in 15 years of American television. Hmm. And so they said, we have to do something about this. This is going to affect our kids. And uh, so there was this crusade to take violence off of television. I just want to interject. I remember so vividly, and I suppose you do too, how especially Saturday morning cartoons changed drastically and it felt like it happened overnight that shows that i just loved like space ghost and the herculoids and so on uh vanished and yeah. and uh and and it was over this concern perhaps a valid concern i don't know it but was. a concern about violence on television it was overnight that wasn't just in your mind it was it, it happened in the uh the fall of 1968 right as the third season of star trek is premiering and so even, even shows like Bugs Bunny and things like that, a lot of these shows were being taken off this Saturday morning because they were saying, well, this is too violent. Uh, Daffy Duck's getting his beak blown off in this episode, and you can't do that. So a lot of things are suddenly being taken off the air. And look at the, uh, just the iconic shows from the 1960s. It suddenly vanished almost overnight. The Avengers, the Wild Wild West, uh, Batman. There was just a lot of uh, action and, and, and violent action. Uh, being done on television. So the FCC comes forward and says, we're not going to have this. Well, Star Trek had been an action-adventure show. And now suddenly it's it's kind of an intellectual science fiction show. And a lot of the warmth has been taken out. Now, it's still Star Trek. You know, you can watch those third-season episodes, and it, it feels like Star Trek, it looks like Star Trek, but if you're really, really into the show, you can notice a difference. It's it's subtle, but it's there. So, and And with the budget cut as well, you know, if you know anything about production, if any of your listeners know anything about TV production, you know, every time you, you move into a new room, a new set, or even a new angle of a new set, it's a different lighting setup. And so what happens with the budget being cut, you can't have as much movement. So poor Bob Justman, one of his memos that's in book three there, is he says, if we make it into a fourth season, which everybody knew wasn't going to happen at that point, but he said, if it happens... Uh, by the time we get there, the, the show's going to be one long scene in the briefing room where Kirk and Spock talk about what happened, because that's all we're going to be able to afford to do. <laughs> so between the budget, between the humor being taken out, between the mandate for no violence, what had happened is, is it created a change in the show. And they tried not to make that too obvious, they, but, but you, know, you, can, you can tell watching those episodes that something has changed. Hmm. And it's not that anybody lost their talent. That's the, the main thing I wanted to do with book three, is, is that show that, that Freddie Freiberger was a very good producer and a very good writer, and he and Art Singer were rewriting these scripts to make sure the voices were correct and doing everything they could to keep the show feeling like Star Trek and to keep it good. But at the same time, they're dealing with issues that were just working against them in every possible way. Absolutely. And, of course, 
uh, there is also this matter, which we've already touched on, of the exodus from the series of so many key persons. I mean, Gene Roddenberry stepping away from day-to-day contact with the show, although he remained executive producer, but his uh, actual interaction with the show, in a sense, uh, really uh, became uh, less and less significant. And then you have uh, other significant figures in Star Trek who step away altogether for various reasons. And so you have newcomers at the helm uh, who whose understanding of the show uh, is a little more tenuous. And in some cases, they're learning on the job. Completely. Yeah. I, I mean, Fred Freiberger, uh, your your heart will go out to him as you're reading book three because this, this man... You know, he was the guy who put the Wild Wild West together. He didn't create the show, but uh, he was brought in early in that show, like uh, episode four, and really made that show work as far as combining science fiction and fantasy and Western and espionage and uh, and creating the character Dr. Miguelita Loveless and all that. So, you know, very talented writer-producer. And uh, but you know he was given uh, a, a difficult job, and he found out nobody at NBC would return his calls. And so here's a producer trying to make a series for a network, and nobody at the network's talking to him. And he finds out that later that they're so angry at Gene Roddenberry that they don't want to have anything to do with the show or anybody that Roddenberry handpicked to come in and do the show. So they're all dealing with this situation. The burnout thing in television. You look at so many of these shows from I Spy, which I did a book on, uh, Lost in Space, Star Trek, Batman, The Avengers, all these were three-year series. And, you know, back then, they did about 30 episodes a season, where now it's maybe 20, if if you're lucky. So they were doing more episodes. They had to film them in six days. And and you had small crews, small staffs. So you have two or three people rewriting all the scripts. Well, after a year, you're exhausted. These are 16-hour days. And so by the time you go through three seasons, usually everyone's pretty much ready to go. You know, they just can't, can't even get up to do another program. So it's not laziness or anything else. It's just exhaustion. We're human beings. Hmm. So, yeah, there was a lot of exhaustion in that show during that last year. Roddenberry was burned out and upset, so he, he left. But what people will find out and be surprised about in reading book three is his involvement with season three was actually quite a bit during the beginning giving out those first 16 script assignments. You see a lot of memos from him on the development of the scripts and so forth. He tried to distance himself with it from it after that because he realized the third year wasn't as well received. So even he was saying, well, it's the new guy. It's Fred Freiberger. Well, not really. You, you see those memos in there, and his involvement is there, and it's his mandates that are saying no humor and, and so forth. But by the middle of the third season, he was gone as well. Hmm. Um, Before we dig into uh, some specific uh, episodes and some really remarkable stories, I want to just talk for a moment about Paramount and and somebody that in at least some respects really comes off as a bad guy, (laughs) and that's Douglas Kramer, who is, he doesn't work for NBC, he works for Paramount, uh, but he is the person who seems to really control the purse strings here. And It's so interesting because as someone who's been watching this show for decades now, I mean, for 30, 40 years I've been watching this show, um, (laughs) that's a name I've seen hundreds, literally hundreds of times. uh, uh, By the time you get towards the end of the series, that's the last name we see on the screen in the closing credits. And that name, until I read your book, meant nothing to me. I had no idea who that guy was, but I guess if I gave him any thought at all, I would just think, of, oh, and he's one more guy that helped bring us Star Trek. And we read your book and we realize this guy whose name is proudly emblazoned in the closing credits of Star Trek, uh, as far as we can tell, he didn't like Star Trek at all. And, and he's one of the key figures in, in a sense, bringing about its slow, painful demise. Yeah, he's, he's head of production for Paramount, for the television division. He's the liaison between the studio and the networks. And he took over for Herb Solo, and you saw Herb Solo's name was the last name popping up during those first two seasons on Star Trek, along with a lot of other shows Desilu was doing, like Mission Impossible and, and so forth. But uh, then uh, Herb left to go over to MGM. Douglas Kramer comes in, and the new mandate is we're not going to let this show ruin the studio like it did Desilu. So he, he put down uh, strict regulations that uh, you stop shooting at 620 
at night because they had to have the set wrapped by 6.30 or they were going to go into union overtime. And they could do it in 10 minutes. They were that quick and that, that efficient. So at 6.20, if they're in the middle of a scene, somebody from his office would come down and start turning off the lights. Hmm. Well, you get it done, and, and if you didn't get all your shots, that's too bad. You're going to have to try to make cut the scene together with what you got. Hmm. Uh, six days in and out during uh, Gene Roddenberry's uh, term during season one and Gene Kuhn during season two, they, most of the episodes took seven days to film. And that's something people didn't realize, too. They all thought, oh, it was a six-day show. No, usually it went seven. It was supposed to be six, but they all went over budget. Freddie Freiberger was the first producer who actually brought the series in on budget. That was his gift. He would write the scripts or rewrite the scripts so they could be shot in six days. They weren't as exciting, didn't have as many setups, but they could be done in six days realistically. So, yeah, D Doug Kramer's office was, was very uh, insistent that it be done. Now, that doesn't make him a villain. You know, he was doing his job. He was doing what he was hired to do. And he wasn't being hired to make Star Trek as good as it could be. He was being hired to make it affordable and not damage the studio. Now, in hindsight, you know, Paramount has, has survived off of Star Trek. That, that's, that show became the franchise. And uh, if they had known that then, they would have pumped more money into it, and they would have got, wanted it to go to a fourth season. Right. I mean, that's such an ironic development, isn't it, that, that, that Star Trek, rather than killing Paramount, being this black hole in which money's being poured that might sink the, the, the studio the way it sank Desilu, uh, ultimately does just the opposite. And, and, in, and in a sense, you sort of there's part of you that feels like, Paramount doesn't deserve that. They they don't deserve to be saved by Star Trek. Although on the other hand, they're the ones who bankrolled it. I mean, it it this is a hard world for us to understand. Those of us who live outside of us and outside of it and peer inside, uh, you know, through through your book and 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 other and by other means to understand what's going it, on. Yeah. They didn't believe in it at all when when the show uh, got canceled by NBC at the end of the third year. And it was supposed to be 26 episodes. They actually had two more episodes written, ready to go. And when they were in the middle of filming the 24th episode, Turnabout Intruder, word came down that uh, the network had reneged and they weren't going to put up money for the, the, second, uh, the last two episodes. And the studio didn't want to fund them on their own. So they pulled the plug. And it's a shame because these last two episodes, one of them was called The Joy Machine, written by Theodore Sturgeon, who wrote a couple of their best episodes, famous science fiction author. And William Shatner was going to direct it. So it was heartbreaking for everybody to lose those, those last two episodes. But uh, what, what, what they could have done is they could have shopped it to the other networks. ABC probably would have picked it up. You saw a lot of shows jumping from one network to another. That was the year NBC canceled Get Smart, and CBS picked it up. They canceled The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, and ABC picked it up. But Paramount didn't even shop it to the other networks. What they did is before it even the last uh, new episode aired, they put it up into syndication. And it was already bought in 40 overseas countries. It was picked up by 100 stations across the United States, and it went up to 170 stations within a couple of years. So they made a fortune off of that. Hmm. We're speaking with Mark Cushman about his third volume, These Are the Voyages, examining Star Trek, the original series. And the heart and soul of the book, although there are these chapters that involve various themes, uh, the heart and soul of the book is the, the process in which we're taken through each and every episode and the way in which each and every episode uh, took shape. Um, I learned all kinds of things uh, in, in, in reading your book, and it was really quite fascinating. One thing that was quite striking was reading about two different instances in which essentially production stopped. Uh, in one case, because of William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, Kirk and Spock, refusing to do a particular scene. This is in the episode, uh, Is There in Truth No Beauty? And a little later in the season, for the episode, Whom Gods Destroy, Leonard Nimoy, again, who played Mr. Spock, refuses to go on because of his strenuous objections to a particular scene. Um, just tell our listeners a little bit about these two moments. It really helps underscore how much these actors cared about the program, even if, for instance, certain suits at Paramount did not. Yeah, and another one, Plato's Stepchildren, which uh, the, the network flew their censors out there, and when they were on the set, and that was the one with the interracial kiss. 
And they said, you know, this is not going to play well in the South, and we don't want you to do this. And so that was a big ado as well. But, you know, what, what is it, for Is There in Truth No Beauty, Gene Roddenberry had his mail-order company running at that point, and fans would write in, and they could buy things, scripts and film trims and so forth. And he came up with this little uh, medallion, the IDIC, I-D-I-C. And, and it uh, was supposed to be about the Vulcan philosophy, about uh, different personalities and different experiences combined make us stronger. And uh, so he, he wrote in a scene for that episode and sent it over to Fred Freiberger and said, you know, put this in the episode. And it came down to the set, and they're rehearsing this, uh, this scene in, in the uh, briefing room. And Nimoy and Shatner say, wait a minute, what is this? It, it just feels like a little infomercial plugged into the middle of this script. You know, so he can sell this thing through his mail order company. We're not going to do this. And, uh, you know, Roddenberry felt it was a great idea. He said, no, this is what Star Trek's all about. This thing represents what Star Trek is about, and it's true. But the way it was handled, the way it was plugged into the episode at the last minute, the 11th hour, uh, didn't really work. And so they refused to do the scene as written. And the guest stars are there, Diana Mulder and David Frankham are there, and I interviewed uh, them, and, and, and it was, uh, they were just amazed that they're about to shoot this thing, and suddenly the two stars of the show say, no, we're not doing it. And Fred Freiberger's called down to the set, and he can't talk them into doing it, and they had to call Roddenberry, and he had to drive over from MGM and come down and promise to rewrite it. They, they pulled the scene out, and they said, well, let's go on and do something else. And he went back and rewrote the scene for the next day, and they still didn't like it. And so Shatner and Nimoy ended up rewriting it themselves to make it more palatable for them to do. And uh, that was the, the power that they had on that show. You can't do Star Trek without Kirk Spock. Now, they didn't flex their muscles too often in this respect, but it was coming down to where it was a butting of the heads between the creative staff and the actors. Everybody's trying to protect the show, and they're trying to make it as good as they can. Now, even Fred Freiberger didn't like the scene, but, you know, he's working for Gene. Gene sends it down and says, put this in. He's, he looked at his uh, story consultant, Art Singer, and they kind of shrugged their shoulders and thought, well, what can we do? He's the boss. we got to do it. So that was one. Now, who mourns for a uh, – I'm sorry, uh, uh, whom gods destroy? Uh, in that one, there was a scene where Kirk is um, – uh, uh, what was the name of the actor? Um, oh, my God. I can't remember uh, his name right at the moment, but uh, he, he, he's a shapeshifter, and, uh, and he's able to make himself look like Kirk, and they're trying to get Spock to give a uh, password so they can beam up to the ship. And Spock knows that, of course, that one of them is not real. There's one Kirk, and there's a fake Kirk. So in the, in the scene, uh, Fred Freiberger wanted them, the two Kirks to fight. It made for a great visual gimmick. And Leonard Nimoy says, well, I know why you want to do this, but, but you're making my character look foolish that he can't figure out which Kirk is the real one. And I'm not going to do these lines as written. And so he went to his makeup room, wouldn't come out, and so they rewrote that script. So you, you see situations like this. I just had a lot of conflict during that third year as they're trying to preserve the integrity of the show. But they're all dealing with uh, factions that uh, say, look, we've got to get an episode shot in the next six days, and this is the script we have. Let's go forward. And the stars say no. Right. And you know, the, we, there are also several examples in which uh, dialogue will be trimmed out of an episode because of time. And in many cases, I mean, you cite, I, I can think of at least three or four examples in your book of information that's really crucial to an episode making sense that gets trimmed away just because, oh, we're, we're, uh, we're a minute and a half too long, and snip, this comes out, and, yep. and, and information that is valuable, in fact, essential to the episode making sense, is suddenly gone. And, of yep. course, if you're trimming a minute and a half from Get Smart or Green Acres or something like that, chances are it's not going to be the crucial matter that it is with a show like Star Trek. And then when you think about the way people watch a show like this, I mean, wanting to take it in on a really profound level that just doesn't fly to be that right. careless right well you know what part of the fun of doing these books uh, for me writing them researching them for you reading them is you find out how much everybody cared you see these memos going back and forth between the creative staff and not just in writing the scripts but also uh, on the set and filming every aspect of it the editing as you just mentioned so you get to see each episode being shaped and all the decisions that are being made on how to make it as good as it can be uh, and fighting against the elements that are trying to make it as bad as it can be. Save money, save time, just get it out. 
And uh, they really worked hard on these things. And with Star Trek, you know, they were trying to do a very serious show that would make commentary on so many important issues. And they and Roddenberry and and Justman just had a feeling this show was going to continue. You can tell from their memos that they they felt they were doing something important. So they they weren't going to say, well, it's good enough, just do it. You know, everybody wanted it to be as good as it could be. And so it's tough when you have to cut it down to make it fit 50 minutes, which is what it would be, not counting the commercials. And, well, here's a minute that can come out in order to make it fit. And it's a very important line. And a lot of the fights that went on between them and the censors. There's this one third season episode. I don't know if you've gotten that far in the book, but uh, Mark of Gideon, which was very controversial, as a lot of the episodes were, because this one dealt with overpopulation. And no entertainment show had done an episode about overpopulation before. And they even talk about condoms in this thing. You know, they're talking about ways to control it because the people on this planet were almost immortal. They, they, they had no disease. So they want to bring Kirk in and take his blood and create infection on this planet so people can start dying so they can have room to live. And very, very, uh, very edgy episode. And the writers were very upset because NBC didn't want these things talked about. And so they kept cutting out a lot of the, uh, the lines. And there was this one fantastic scene that got filmed and was then trimmed out where these, uh, the guest star on the episode, this woman, she's on the ship with Kirk. And this is where he finds out why they, they have the population problem. She accidentally burns her finger off in the medical lab. And as he watches in astonishment, her finger grows back before his very eyes. Mm. Well, this is why you guys can't... Uh, sterilize anybody or do anything like that because your body is going to renew itself and you're going to just keep having kids. And uh, they filmed that and the and network took it out. Mm. You know, there was an episode during the second season, same thing, uh, Who Mourns for Adonis. Uh, in that episode, they had the Greek god Apollo, who was actually an alien, but he was perceived as a god when he visited Earth back in the days of old Greece. And uh, he's lonely. He's living on a planet all by himself. He misses being worshipped. And he falls in love with this one crew member of the ship. And they had a scene in there called The Rape of the Wind, where his anger comes out and she's thrown to the ground and the wind's blowing over her. Well, the tag scene for the episode, McCoy comes on the bridge, and it's in the script. They filmed it. He comes on the bridge and he says to Kirk and Spock, he says, I just did a a medical checkup on her and she's pregnant. And they kind of look at each other and, oh, my God, and, and, and... one of them turns to her and he says, "Is it?" And he says, "Apollo, yeah." And he says, "So here's the question: Is the baby going to be a person or a god?" And they filmed this, but it was not allowed to go into the air. Mm. <laughs> we get so, so frustrated that uh, yeah. at, at the squeamishness of those in charge, and and let on the other hand, they did allow some some things to go forward, including uh, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago that uh, dramatic interracial kiss between Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura under the control of aliens in the uh, episode Plato's Stepchildren. Actually, that's a great story. Now, that one, uh, you know, they, they, in the script, it, it had Kirk is kissing Uhura. Well, the network fought that. They said, well, we can't have that happen. And everyone says, why? And, his, and then they realize, oh, because he's white and she's black, I see. And, uh, and, and, you know, NBC was doing I Spy at the time, the first show that had a white and a black actor working opposite each other in equal billing and sharing motel rooms as they traveled around the world. But, you know, to have these two people kiss is a whole different thing. And so they said, well, can he kiss Nurse Chapel? And we'll have uh, Spock kiss Yuhura. And So it would be an alien Kissing yeah, a black okay. woman instead okay of a the pointed-eared guy to kiss, kiss the black woman, but not the other guy. You know? <laughs> so they fought it and fought it, and finally the network said, okay, do it. Well, the networks have different levels of censorship. There's different offices. And so one office approved it. And then it gets up to the West Coast office, finally said, okay, do it. And then uh, it's the day before they're going to shoot that scene, and somebody at the New York office takes a look at it and says, wait a minute, how did this get by? We can't do this. And they fly out there and they're on the set, and they're getting ready to shoot the scene, and it's the last scene they're shooting that day, and it's almost 6.20, and uh, and they're saying, you know, you can't do this, you can't do this, and Roddenberry comes down to the set, and there's a big fight, and, uh, you know, he was called, and he drove over from MGM again because this was very important to him, and and to Fred Freiberger as well, who's the real champion of wanting to get that scene in. And they said, well, look, 
you know, we'll fight about it later. Let's shoot it two ways. We'll shoot it where he just kisses her on the cheek, and we'll shoot it where he kisses her on the lips, and then we'll fight with you and decide which one can go into the episode. So they shoot the, um, they shoot the real kiss first. Now it's about a quarter after six. They got time for one more take before the guy's going to start turning the lights off. Douglas Kramer people are going to be switching the lights off. And so they only get one chance to shoot the fake kiss. And they do it. It looks fine. The NBC people are happy. They leave. What they don't see is that uh, when Yuhura and uh, Kirk kiss, William Shatner has the camera facing him. And he looks into the camera as he's kissing her on the cheek, and he crosses his eyes. And they do one take. So now the next day they're looking at the dailies, and it's like, oh, we can't use that. We have no choice. We only have one scene to use. We have to do the kiss. So they put it on the air. They got letters, but they got more positive letters than negative letters. Hmm. Well. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I, I, did, I don't think I caught the last bit of those words. Yeah, they, well, they, they, uh, William Shatner looks into the camera, and he crosses his eyes. Now, the NBC guys on the sidelines can't see that he does that. But the camera sees it, of course, in a big close-up. Next day, they're watching the dailies, and he messed up that one take. And that was the fake kiss. So hmm. they couldn't use the fake kiss. So they had no choice but to use the real one. So they put it on the air, and everybody held their breath nervously. And over the next week or two, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of letters actually came in. Uh, people wrote letters to TV Guide about it. And you, I, you see I print some letters in, in the book there on this, this episode. And a couple of them say, Star Trek went too far the other night. But most of the letters were very, very supportive of this, saying, hooray for Star Trek. Finally, finally, somebody is saying, look, she's a beautiful woman, and what the heck. <laughs> so, you know, that was one of those things where the cast, William Shatner, by crossing his eyes into the camera as he was doing the fake, the fake kiss on that very last shot that they could do that day, made it to where they had to use the real kiss in that episode. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Um, one thing that you, you explain, and I'm so glad you do, is something that had always struck me as so odd, and it's in the uh, episode... Uh, let this be their last battlefield, which we have these two aliens from two different races, but in both cases they are split down the middle, black and white, but in reverse of each other. But they see each other as utterly two different races, and of course it's a it's a, a very interesting uh, take on the whole notion of, of of racism. But there is this long sequence towards the end of that episode in which one is pursuing the other through the corridors of the Enterprise. And it goes on forever. It goes mm -hmm. on and on and on and on. And I've always wondered all these years why in the world that happened. Why, why they wasted so much time with this pursuit that never seems to end. Mm -hmm. And uh, your book explains exactly why that happened. Right. I'm the same as you, Greg. I, I have to turn over every rock. Every stone gets turned over as I watch these things and say, why was this decision made? And there, there's an episode, you know, it goes on for a few minutes, but it seems like hours, that, uh, that these two actors are chasing each other down the corridors of the Enterprise. Well, what happened was, you know, they were so over budget at this point, and Fred Freiberger was trying so much to, to bring the show in on budget, that they started writing the script shorter. Because they, they would usually do about a 64-page script, and then they could trim it down to, to fit into a 50-minute time slot. And sometimes a scene would get filmed and get left on the editing room floor. Or they would have to trim a lot of lines. But that made for the episodes to be tighter and have a nice pace to them. Well, by the time you get halfway into the third season, they're, they're realizing we just cannot afford to be shooting stuff we're not going to use. So they started writing the scripts to be shorter, and that particular script was 54 pages, which was a little on the light side. And when they ended up editing it, they found out they were a couple minutes short for the 50 minutes that they needed for airing. And uh, so they took that scene, well, we had a lot of shots of them running up and down the quarters. We'll just, we'll just pad it. We'll extend this out. <laughs> That's why that thing ended up being as long as it was. That episode is so interesting for a couple reasons. First of all, the fans are divided. Some love it, and some think it's a little too camp. I love it. Uh, I, I feel that, you know, racial bigotry is so absurd. 
I mean, we can hate people for a lot of reasons and probably be justified, but, you know, just to hate somebody for the color of their skin is a whole different subject. And so if you're going to make commentary on that, why not do it and show the absurdity of it? And I love that scene where they're talking to Frank Gorshin in the briefing room, and he's the ambassador who's come to try to take the other guy back in, in irons. And, uh, and he says, his people, his people, his kind. You keep saying his kind. And Shatner says, uh, I, I don't understand. He, well, you keep saying his kind. He's like you. He's black on one side and white on the other. And Frank Gorshin looks at him and says, are you blind? You know, his people are, are black on the, on the right side. My people are white on the right side. <laughs> All of his people are black on the right side. And I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful statement that they made in that. But here's the interesting thing. One week before they started filming this episode, it was uh, a guy who looked like an angel and a guy who looked like a devil. And they brought in Judd Taylor to direct. And he's having his pre-production meeting with Fred Freiberger and Art Singer. And he's saying, you know, this is a little too obvious. We know that the, the guy who looks like the devil is going to end up being the, the more righteous of the two. It's just, you know, we just know it. You see, can we be a little more clever? And, and, well, what do you think? And he says, what if one's white and half white and half black? And we do it that way. And Fred Freiberger looked at Art Singer and said, that's good. He said, go rewrite the script. And so just days before they're going to pull the trigger on this one, Art Singer's back there pounding out a new draft, and Fred Freiberger has to rewrite it. And it's a complete rewrite of a Gene Kuhn script. They totally had to change it as they're pre-producing it, getting ready to film, and they have to devise the makeup and everything else. So it was done that quickly. You know, there, there's, there's a, an example of creative producers who hear a good idea, or realize they can make a good statement with this idea, and just go with it, even in the last moments as they're preparing. There's a lot of wrong information, Greg, out there on the Internet. That's one of the reasons why I want to do these books, is all the, the true information is in the show files. It's just nobody ever took time to go through them. All the true information is in the Nielsen ratings reports. Nobody took time or wanted to spend any money to license them. So I wanted to get to the truth. And there's a lot of information out there that this episode was actually a rewrite of one from the first season that NBC wouldn't allow them to shoot called Portrait of Black and White. And it's not, not at all. Portrait of Black and White was Gene Roddenberry's idea written by Barry Trivers. And it was, um, they beamed down to a planet that is a parallel of Earth and it's pre-Civil War. And blacks are the ruling race and whites are slaves. And the uh, away team is taken captive and put in chains and sold as slaves. And the network said, we can't do this. This is just too, too edgy. So they, they tried to get that done. They rewrote it, tried to get it done in the second season, still couldn't get it done. And so in the third year, uh, Gene Kuhn came in with this other story, which was totally different. But in the pre-production stage, it turned into a racial story and a racial theme. Ultimately, uh, the, the, the third season, as are the first and second seasons as well, a mix of hits and misses, mm-hmm. and uh, and of course, uh, it's just that in the third season there are um, more misses than there were in the in the, in the previous epi- uh, right. seasons. But they're still interesting to write about. Um, let me give you a moment to just uh, uh, specify your least favorite episode in the third season okay. and your favorite episode in the third season. Well, most people. I don't think it's quite as bad as uh, a lot of people think, uh, although it gets pretty bad towards the end. But uh, Spock's brain is notorious for being the worst Star Trek episode ever made, and that's from the third year. And that's where they take Spock's brain out of his head and some alien race, and they use it to run their computer system on their planet, their life support. And people thought, what were they thinking? This is just too uh, campy. It's, it's just it's too silly. And maybe it should have been done as a comedy. But, you know, you had the mandate from Roddenberry, no, no humor in the third year. And they snuck in a little bit, but he didn't really want to play it for laughs like episodes like Trouble with Tribbles did during the second year. So, but what happened? And see, I want to know where all these ideas came from. What were they thinking? That's what I want to know. And that's what's interesting for me to write about and find. And what had happened with that one is just a couple weeks before they came up with the idea, the first heart transplant took place. And it was big news all around the world, and people were out protesting this. Man does not have the right to play God. And Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn were sitting in the office, and they looked at each other and thought, we have to do something with this. Well, 200 years from now, heart transplants aren't going to be anything new, and we're doing kidney transplants. What could it be? And that's when they said, a brain transplant. 
So you can see, it's, it's hard to say that with a straight face, because even now we, we look back, well, brain transplant, that sounds silly. But at that moment, when you're looking at these headlines, and people are out in the street carrying signs and yelling and all this, you know, the police are coming, being called in and everything else, you're seeing this as potential for a very interesting, provocative episode. So that, that's where that one came from. So it's fun for me to see this. Now, the Space Hippies, well, that, I would have to vote that as probably the, the worst episode of the season and the series. Uh, but, again, you know, you're, you're looking at uh, what was going on in 1968 when they came up with that, uh, that idea, in 1969 when they filmed it. And, you know, all the, uh, the protesting going on and, and America coming apart at the seams and this, this uh, different culture that's coming up. And Star Trek was a show that wanted to stay on top of all this and make commentary on all these things. And they did a very interesting thing in that episode, in the fact that the guy who's the leader of these space hippies, and they're trying to find this uh, mythical planet Eden where they can live and get away from all the technology, they're rebelling against the technology of this era. And he has a disease that is being caused by the uh, artificial environments and the artificial food and all the artificial everything that has been created to sustain life and it's created a new disease and he's a carrier of this disease and he's angry about it well we're kind of facing that right now things things that star trek was predicting are coming up so even when you see an episode like that which is maybe the worst it still has elements that are very intriguing and I think that's why Star Trek's still around 50 years later, is a lot of thought went into these scripts, even the ones that were turkeys. Hmm. Your favorite episode? I think the third season has some excellent episodes. You know, one thing Fred Freiberger did is he brought in a lot of women writers. Prior to the third season, he only had two. He had Dorothy Fontana, who was Gene Roddenberry's secretary, and he promoted her to writer. She had always wanted to write, and she had done a couple scripts for a few other shows. So she became a full-time writer at Star Trek and wrote some of their best episodes and then became the series script consultant during the second year. And you had Margaret Arman, uh, who they brought in uh, to do a couple scripts. Well, Fred Freiberger brought in uh, half a dozen other women during the third season, Judy Burns, Jean Lissetta Rosta, Joyce Musket. I interviewed all of them for the book. The only person who ever interviewed um, uh, Jean or Joyce, I had to really track them down to find out where their ideas for the scripts came from. And so he, you know, they, they did stories that were a lot more sensitive and stories that women could enjoy as well, because they couldn't do the action adventure as much as they were in the past. So they did very interesting stories like Is There in Truth No Beauty? And The Empath, which was uh, Gene Roddenberry's favorite episode of the entire season, and DeForest Kelly's favorite as well. And that was a third season episode. Uh, so, and, and those, I think those are excellent episodes. I think Tholian Webb is a really good episode. I think Spectre of the Gun. Now, you know, I, I, I showed that to Susan Osborne, who was my editor on these books. And she had not seen all the Star Treks, and that's why she was she was selected, because it was like, well, we need somebody who doesn't know Star Trek so they can make sure that this stuff is interesting beyond just being about Star Trek. It's about the struggle of making a TV show, and it's about the times. And she saw that episode, and she said, I like this better than any episode I've ever seen. It's so surreal. It's so interesting. And by the way, here's an interesting story about Spectre of the Gun, and that's the one where they... Um, they're forced to go back to Tombstone, Arizona, as a punishment for violating, for invading this section of space where they've been told to stay out, and these aliens don't want anything to do with humankind. And in the script, it wasn't filmed this way. They had to take it out at NBC's insistence. But in the script, the reason these aliens don't want to have anything to do with mankind is because they're picking up television from the 1960s. It's taken that many years for the TV signals to get out there. And so they're watching 1950s and 1960s television shows, and they're seeing the violence and the recklessness of the human race. And suddenly these Earth people appear, and we want nothing to do with you, and that's why they chose Tombstone, Arizona, as their punishment. We're going to make you live and die in your own history. Fascinating concept. Well, the network said, well, we've got to take that out because it makes it look like we're putting bad programming on the air and the FCC won't like it. So they took that element out of the story. It's a shame. So I recreate for you all the things that they tried to do. We look at what they did, but we also look at what they were trying to do with a lot of these episodes. Mm. It really is quite fascinating. And it was trickier with this third season because there was a little less of a paper trail. You tell us that many of the conversations and discussions actually happened over the phone 
uh, versus in endless memos. And so uh, in many cases, you have to do the hard work of looking at old versions and new versions and compare and contrast how these uh, scripts ultimately came into their final right, form. Right. A lot of my work was done for me in the first two books, but even the beginning of the third book, because Gene Roddenberry wrote long memos, and Gene Kuhn wrote long memos, and Bob Justman did too. Well, Bob Justman was still there during the third year, and his memos are delightful. He should have been a stand-up comic. He really wrote funny memos. And so you're, you're, you're hearing their thinking as they're developing the scripts, and you're, you're seeing what they're saying about the problems they're dealing with and how are we going to do this and so forth. Well, by, by the halfway point of the third year, the memos started drying up because Fred Freiberger was a telephone guy. You know, he thought, look, I've got to rewrite all these scripts. I don't have time to be writing 20-page memos on each, each draft of each script. Roddenberry's out of the office. Justman's still there. He's still writing his memos. But you don't have quite as many memos. Uh, during the, those last uh, dozen episodes, certainly. Uh, but I interviewed everyone I could find. And as you said, I would go through the different drafts of the scripts. And you still have the sensory reports coming in from the network and so forth. So you can recreate the thinking that was going on be- between these shows. And I think it's important to say that you are, are not only uh, sharing this with us, but in a sense, you're helping us appreciate, albeit maybe grudgingly, uh, the input from, for instance, the the network that the, that the guy uh, at NBC for a long time it was Stan Robertson and then someone else stepped in to offer the network's concerns about given episodes. In many cases, he's offering insights that are just as perceptive as as anything that's being said by the by those on the creative team, and yeah. it, it flies in the face of what we often think of, you know, that the the guy from the network with the clipboard who's the big crab and the big skeptic uh, is just out of touch with these yeah. wonderful artistic instincts that we have. Uh, in fact, that's that's uh, being simplistic to paint it in those kind of yeah, terms. Th- there were no bad guys. You know, one of the things Star Trek did, and you remember the famous episode De- Devil in the Dark with the Horda, who was perceived as a monster. It's killing people until we find out at the end of the episode we're killing its babies. You know, it's, it's a mother defending its children. And so that's one of the things Roddenberry wanted to do, is he said, look, mo- even monsters have reasons for what they do. And NBC was the monster, and Paramount was the monster with Star Trek. But monsters have reasons for what they do. They're not just coming in wanting to kill. They're killing because they think their survival is dependent upon it. So in writing anything, as a screenwriter, I would do it, and writing these books is you've got to understand all your characters, and you have to have find the motivation of all your characters. And there are no bad guys. It's just differences of opinion. You know, Roddenberry wants as much money as he can. He was proud of the fact that, that the first Star Trek pilot was the most expensive show ever made, and there's a quote in the first book from him where he said to one of the people on the crew, he said, well, this, this may ruin the studio, but if it doesn't, we're going to have a hell of a show. Well, but the studio's got a different idea. The studio is, no, we don't want to be ruined. <laughs> so that's the battle. Those are the battle lines right there. And, but that what makes show a good. You mentioned Stan Robertson of NBC. You know, uh, NBC always just gets blamed for, for being bad. But you know what? Yes, they canceled the show. But it was NBC that was insistent that the show be action adventure. And so you see a lot of memos from NBC from Stan Robertson saying, let's quicken up the pace. Let's let's put in uh, some more action here. Let's put in more conflict here. This story is too reminiscent of one that you did last year. Can you change it? Can you make it different? And things of that nature. And sometimes not just saying, can you do it? But you'll see Stan Robertson making very excellent suggestions on how it can be changed. Hmm. So, so it was a collaboration, very uneasy collaboration, but a collaboration nonetheless that made Star Trek what it was. So are you uh, finished? You are obviously finished in terms of these three books and the three seasons of the original series. Do you foresee yourself crafting some other kind of Star Trek book in the future, or is it too early to be thinking about that? No, no, I'm I'm deep into it. It's funny, I did a a book signing the other day over at the Shrine Auditorium, and somebody came up and on Sunday, and said, uh, said, okay, I'm going to buy all three. I've been waiting. I've been wanting to buy the first two. I keep reading things about them and, and everything. But he says, but I didn't want to buy them just in case you didn't finish the third one. I didn't want to get into it and then not have the whole story. So you can relax. Huh. 
the whole story is there. All three seasons are now covered. We go all the way up to the cancellation. But here's what happened for me. As I'm writing the last chapter of the third book, and I wanted, didn't want to end with just the show getting killed, because even though we all know it, it survives and it comes back, it still seemed like kind of a down or downbeat way to end the book. So I, I started writing about what happened immediately after. And the next thing I know, I have a 100-page chapter. <laughs> <laughs> They're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. These books are too big as it is, and this third book is the biggest one as it, as, of all. And there's no way, you know, we're going to do this. But I knew that as well. I thought, I can't do this. And, and uh, so I, I took it out and uh, just put in, stay tuned. The story's not over yet. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and I started expanding and opening up that last chapter. And it's 200 pages now. And it'll be 400 pages before I'm done. Because I'm just going to give you a little tease of, of what the fourth book is going to be. And nobody has to wait for the fourth book because you have the whole series now examined and we every single episode we know what everyone was thinking and what battles they had to fight with every single episode we know the ratings we know everything but but the story of star trek doesn't end there and what happened is within a year of canceling the show nbc wanted it back they tried to get it back on the air and paramount his his <laughs> wouldn't do it because Paramount's saying, wait a minute, we have a major hit on our hands here. This thing is the number one show in syndication. It's the number one show around the world. Money is pouring in. And if we start making new episodes, it's going to diminish the value of the reruns. It wouldn't have, of course, but they thought it would. And so they refused to put it back on the air as an hour-long show. NBC was talking to them within six months of the show ending. For the first conversation was they said, well, let's do a movie for next season. Let's do a two-hour Star Trek movie every year for TV. And then it was, no, no, we want it back as a series within six months. And uh, NBC kept saying, no, 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 no. Or I'm sorry, Paramount said no. So finally in 73, they said, well, we'll give it back to you as an animated show for Saturday mornings, all the original cast, everything else, same writers, great quality, it won an Emmy. But that won't compete so, so there was this, this interesting battle going on with Star Trek right after it left the air that I never knew about. But again, it's all in the show files. It's in the papers. It's in the people that I've been talking to and things of that nature and a lot of other interesting stuff that I won't tell you mm. that happened in the 10 years between Star Trek getting canceled and Star Trek the motion picture getting on the big screen that, that why it took 10 years and all the ups and downs and twists and turns in the story of Star Trek. And so that's going to be a fourth book, which we're jokingly calling These Are the Voyages, etc. <laughs> Hopefully you'll come up with a better time. Right. I'll start thinking about that, as will others uh, <laughs> at your publisher, of course. In the meantime, the uh, third volume and final volume in this particular group of books, These Are the Voyages, chronicling the uh, original series of Star Trek, uh, is now available and the author, Mark Cushman. Mark Cushman, once again, a great pleasure for me to speak with you about your beautifully crafted, meticulously researched uh, book. And you, uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, we'll talk about et cetera in a year or so. Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Greg.